Earlier this summer, I saw Noga Ayres performing at the Montreal International Jazz Festival. She made a point of acknowledging from the stage that she was an unlikely act for a jazz festival. But in fact, for those of us who knew her full trajectory, it was something of a homecoming for her. So, uh, I grew up listening to jazz. I tried to be a jazz vocalist. At some point, I was like, all the others are so much better than me. I really wanted to perform Montreal Jazz Festival because I heard so much about it. I'm here, even though, you know, this is not really jazz, but... Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin. See, sometime in the first COVID spring, I discovered a video on social media that flipped me out. It was called Views, featuring Russo, live, Kids Against the Machine, Volume 1, by Noga Eras. The video showed eight singers and musicians positioned on screen, mostly seated apart from the baritone saxophone player and the trombone player who stand. The walls and ceiling of the space were draped in beige fabric, which gave the room a feeling of like a tent in the desert. All the players were in muted tones. Noga herself wore a cream-colored checkered pantsuit and a rust-colored neck scarf. She was flanked by two backing vocalists and a guy sitting on a high stool, barefoot and wearing what appeared to be a stylish bathrobe, sunglasses, and a bucket hat. This, I decided, must be Russo. And I was right about that. The presentation, the song, the arrangement, the vibe were all totally evocative, funky, a kind of rap or contemporary vocal approach, but with a very handmade production style. And watch your back, I break your neck, I pop a can of iron lack and paint your black, your name and black, the lace and keeping over back the others. I had no idea what this thing was, where it was coming from, or who these people were. But whatever it was, I was totally into it. I shared it with friends, I watched it over and over again. Noga Eras, what is that? Who is that? Where is that? I got busy investigating, and here's what I discovered. Noga Erez is a singer, songwriter, and producer from Israel. Russo? The guy in the bathrobe is Ori Russo, her partner, both creatively and personally. He produces her recent records and writes much of the music with her. And Israel, of course. Those funky desert Jews making me proud, getting all up in it. Shalom. The Kids Against the Machine were live recordings that Noga and Ori made to accompany their studio versions of the same songs. They ended up making a full album of Kids Against the Machine arrangements because they were so popular. But the majority of Noga's output has actually been electronic, and she's influenced by Flying Lotus, Bjork, and Kendrick Lamar. Here's the official studio version of the song Views, the one that I first saw in the tent. The more organic live versions of the songs were meant as a kind of creative exercise, but I really loved them, and as Noga explains it, so did a lot of her fans. I tracked down Noga Eris in the summer of 2020, and we talked about her career starting as a jazz singer-songwriter and then transitioning to what she describes as the music in my heart. But also we talked about the curious relationship between Israel and the United States from the point of view of a contemporary pop artist, what it means to be a political artist, whether or not music itself can really make a difference politically today, what it means to be the offspring of limitation, and if the phrase, I don't pop with that, I don't pop with that, actually exists or not. Since then, Noga's popularity has continued to grow. She and Ori are on tour in Europe for the rest of the summer, and then they'll be back in the States in September playing at Madison Square Garden and Red Rocks. 
third-story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, check the archive, including previous episodes that dip the toe in the same salty water that we dip here today. I recommend the conversations with Noah and Gil Dore. In fact, Noga Eras and I reference that conversation here today. And also, while you're checking out the old shows, why not listen to conversations with Jorge Drexler, Gabriela Quintero, Falu, Jacques Schwartz-Bart, Camila Meza, Alex Cuba, Lionel Lueque, or Victoria Canal. Why those? Because each of those conversations in some way looks at the way American music and culture informs musicians internationally and how various artists have integrated the American influence into their native musical languages. There's a second thread running through some of the previous episodes that might be worth revisiting also, and that one is an ongoing discussion of how Jewish culture and American popular culture are interacting with one another. Conversations with Jack Stratton, Jeremy Dauber, John Madoff, Peter Himmelman, Michael Dorff, Larry Sloman, Donald Fagan, and even my dad, Ben, examine that issue from various angles. Patreon.com slash Third Story Podcast is where you can go to send me an $18 Israel bond or whatever else you want to contribute. And the third story is now a collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit WBGO.org slash studios to learn more. Here's me and Noga Era zooming it up back in the summer of 2020. Noga, I'm going to try to say it. Noga Eres. Almost. That was cute. <sighs> all right, all right. Okay, so I'll just, I'll say your name in American. Noga Eres. That's what they say? Yeah, that's pretty much it. What do you say? Noga Eres. Eres. Flat and dry. Eres. It's so- Eres, and you have to really flatten the E because it's like, eh. Eres. Noga Eres. Nice. Almost. You sound a bit French when you try to say that. That's the closest R I know how to do. The, he- the Hebrew R and the French R. They're similar. I guess. Apparently not as similar as I thought. So I have to tell you, I sometime in early pandemic times, I found this video of your version in the tent of views. The version with <laughs> kids against the machine. Right. And it was the first time I had heard you. It was the first time I had seen Ori. It was the first time I knew anything about you. And that video was like a bolt of lightning for me. It was so exciting. I shared it with everybody I knew. And there was something so evocative about it. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. And I guess for starters, I just want you to tell me how you ended up in that tent doing that. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so crazy because... The tent is my apartment, yeah. which you can see right now. We yeah. have a video. I'm guessing people will not see this, right? No, they this probably will not see this. Podcast. It's a different platform. But the the thing was not a tent. I mean, the idea was um, I wanted to do it in my home because I, I've arranged myself a house that is like a loft apartment, a big studio apartment that the intention was to be able to make noise here, record here, film stuff here. So... Um, so I did this here. It's, it's a playground here. And basically what we did was to cover the walls with, I wanted the color palette to be, um, earthy. So brown and white and stuff like that. And then what became of it was something that looked like a tent and that was not my intention at all. And I was kind of scared of it. I I thought it looked ugly, (laughs) but then, you know, I had to, I had to go with it because it was already built 
and people loved it. And people talk about, you know, the video with the tent. So it had kind of the signature, but it was, it's my, it's my home and, and the, the walls are covered with fabrics. When you say you were afraid of it, was it that you didn't necessarily like the way it looked or were you concerned that people might make assumptions about this Israeli group in a tent? Yeah. I mean, well, I didn't like the way it looked. I uh-huh. didn't, th- I didn't, you know, like it aesthetically, but also I thought that it might look as if I'm trying to present myself as, you know, this singer from the Middle East. And when people imagine the Middle East, they might think of tents and desert. And that was not at all my intention. And, you know, many times I think uh, people from around here who have, you know, the intention to have careers outside of Israel or wherever here, they try to take that authenticity and kind of (laughs) present it in an exaggerated way. And I'm not into that at all because, you know, everything about this place is so Western. So when you try to fake it, it's, I think it's weird. I will say as an American Jew watching Mm -hmm. a bunch of Israelis sing this and particularly this line but I know us Jews we don't like to lose to anybody us Jews don't like to lose to anybody (laughs) what do you think about that line I am still processing it you know I mean it feels very Israeli to me I mean I hear what you're saying that it it is an exaggeration Mm -hmm. for Israeli artists especially international Israeli artists necessarily to say, oh, I'm so exotic. I'm so (laughs) Middle Eastern or whatever. But on the other hand, there was something that felt very Israeli to me about that sentiment. Us Jews don't like to lose to anybody. Yeah. You know, I'm still processing that line as well. I have to tell you, I have to be honest, you know, the entire chorus of, you know, the hook of this song, I'm still processing the text because this text is so um, raw to me and so straightforward and in a way you know people buy views and you know i know us jews it's so hardcore in your face and so raw that i still listen to it and and like sometimes i'm like but at the same time i really love that fact about it that is so intense in your face and and that it's so uh, kind of like simple and stupid and fun at the same time. But it has a lot of, you know, intention and meaning behind it. Well, I think already in our conversation, one of the things that I'm hearing you grapple with, deal with, negotiating, is this idea of being an international artist and existing in the sort of hip-hop space and electronic music space and pop space and also coming from Israel. Yeah. How do you approach that? How do you think about that? It all kind of changed um, in the past few months because I got to a point that I actually was able to feel comfortable with being, you know, a part of the global planet, you know, hmm. a, a child of globalization, which is really what I am. I grew up being a part of the world and with internet. And I I kind of always feel like, you know, the fact that I'm located here is just a really small part of it, but also a huge part of it at the same time. And then, you know, what this time kind of forced was me being from Israel, local, you know, I'm not a person who lives in the world anymore in this past few months because I've been traveling a lot and kind of starting to feel very comfortable with being in many different places and yeah I think you're spot on because it's always kind of the the spectrum between feeling so connected and rooted in everything that is happening here and influenced by 
all the events and you know it's eventful here and also feeling so incredibly um, detached and disconnected from it and uh, a part of something bigger and greater. I mean, the good news, I guess, for you is that you might not be living in the world the way you used to, but nobody else is either. And in a strange way, we're all more connected. I mean, when I think about it, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for the disconnection that we've been going through. I, I think in a strange way, we have discovered an alternate form of connection through all of this. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And also the form of connection was there the whole time. We were just uh, forced to embrace it. And I mean, here it's kind of changed already. But people, when we released Views and Views Acoustic, you know, Kids Against the Machine, everyone had so much time. But also I think what was striking people so much was the fact that we filmed it um, in February and no, that was pre pandemic and we were able to get together and there was there were many people in the room and I think that that was a big part of why people liked it Hmm. so much because they saw a group of people together in a room very close and I feel like that was a very um, rare thing in a view. But how do you deal with now the fact that the really most of the music that you're making your new record the singles that you're putting out are not really existing in that space they continue to be kind of electronic and fully produced and you know i mean how do you how are you going to play with with those edges we had a vision uh, when i say we it it usually means that i'm talking about myself and ori russo my partner and we make the music together and when there's visions it usually means that we are imagining stuff together so that is we <laughs> and so we had the vision of you know, releasing our songs that tend to be heavily produced. I don't even know if I should call it electronic. I don't even know what it is anymore. I kind of lean, it leans towards so many different genres, but heavily produced and uh, computer-based production. And that was the urge, you know, to release a song and then to give people the option to Hmm. listen to the song when it's stripped down and when you hear it with acoustic and more like a warm organic sound and we decided to do it with each and every single also to kind of prove a point that the songs are not all about production the songs are songs because that is like one major focus that we had this time with the with the album and there are like more proper songs in the album and then you know I never thought about uh performing it live I always wanted it to be you know documentation of something that we would do especially for that and then you know let it go but it seems like here which is you know the place that I have right now to perform because live shows are gradually coming back they are happening here in open spaces in social distancing right it's like just just coming back right now and um there there seems to be I mean people want that thing (laughs) they want the the acoustic version and we're totally 100% 100% not ready for that. You know, <laughs> we we never thought that would be the case um, or that we would even think about it because we were supposed to be doing other things. But we're starting to think about it. And I'm really excited about it because being on stage alone, you know, with two other people in the back is one thing. But then having a group with you, I mean, for me, the whole experience was so comfy because I felt like a lot of the focus was, you know, spread. And I I felt really comfortable in that space. So it's something that we really need to figure out. It's a very uh, relevant question. I noticed in 
comparing your kind of stage persona, live videos that I've seen of you when you perform just originally with the drummer and then later on with Ori also, that you're very animated on stage. I heard you once describe this alter ego, this other persona that takes over yeah. you named Dasha. Dasha Snow. Dasha Snow. And Dasha Snow is everything that you aren't. She's extroverted and she dances and she goes crazy and she's a party animal on stage. She used to be everything that I wasn't, but gradually she's just taking over my personality. That's the truth. And I'm, I'm so happy. I used to have a really severe stage fright. I used to throw up before shows and performing is like my biggest, one of my biggest victories in life huh. because I was just not able to do it. And then um, I don't know where I heard that some people have their, you know, stage alter ego and that this whole thing could be solved by um, kind of portraying some kind of character. And so, you know, I developed this character and I was like, okay, so she needs to be everything that I'm not able to be. Uh, a, a moment before a show which is very free and confident and all those things so I started you know being that and meditating that before shows and then gradually just became natural and I feel like I'm gradually becoming more able to be that um, and not you know trying to play that it, it gradually became me which is great when I saw you in the tent that is not a tent but I still think of it as a tent you're, and you're sitting down <laughs> and you're performing yeah. seated in this blazer and this like this kind of, I don't know, formal, stylized version of yourself. Your movements and your stage presence was much more contained. I mean, maybe because you're surrounded by so many people, you didn't have to be so big. You could actually play it very small, the finger on the cheek, the look over the shoulder, but it played very large. So I don't think it was only in the music. I think it was also in the way you interacted with the audience, the camera or whoever the audience was, was also a little bit different in that context. Absolutely. It's like the difference between um, playing in theater and playing in front of a camera. I uh. think that those are completely different skills. And um, I, I think even if it was, you know, the same setup that I have today, which is, you know, the electronic setup that I have two people playing on, you know, SPDSX, which are, you know, the drum machine stuff. And I think I've learned, I have some really embarrassing videos of myself before I understood the difference. And I took all the presence that I have from the stage into, you know, camera situations. Right. And it's also big and really animated, as you say, um, kind of took me <laughs> a few videos to, to figure out the difference and to make things um, smaller and I think in in a way when it's like that it kind of lets other more um, delicate things come out and I think it's 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 really strong I think those are you know the things that people kind of catch on and maybe uh, connect with you said that performing is one of the great victories of your life I got the sense that there were a couple of others as well oh yeah <laughs> Um, the other one is that I was able to step out of, uh, um, how would you say that, pattern of dating assholes. Congratulations. <laughs> That's one. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, ha I was sure um, for a long time that I'm doomed to um, step in and out of toxic uh, relationships. And it didn't just happen overnight. I really had to work on that 
sense of thinking that that is what I deserve. I think that would be my number one victory. You know, Ori is not just my partner in music. He's my partner in life. He's actually here. He's sitting right behind, behind you me. on the couch. Yeah, hi. Cringing over every time I say Dasha Snow. He hates the name. Why? He hates the name of the character. Why? Um, I don't know. I think he's a person of sound, and I think it doesn't sound good to him. Ori is uh, my victory of, uh, you yes. know, falling in love with someone who's who has a good heart and who wants me to win. So that would be the the biggest one. And then, you know, the stage fright thing and other smaller victories, which are, you know, the fear of, I don't know, um, sitting alone in a room in front of an empty page trying to make something. That is a huge, huge fear for me. And I'm gradually maybe... I don't know if I am overcoming it, but there are small victories in it. I'm often curious about the dynamic in relationships, artistic and personal relationships, in which you have, I think, the benefit of really understanding each other completely and being able to constantly be working on your project together. And at the same time, there's just no space. I think sometimes some of the most incredible creative relationships are also the ones that are personal, like you have. I mean, tell me, what is it like to live in that space with Ori, to have your musical yeah. partner be your life partner also? Well, funny enough, our home is also like a one space. We don't, yeah. have, we don't have rooms in our house. Uh -huh. it's, it's all a one space. And that's, you know, I think we both luckily are people who don't see that much you know, separation between creative life and personal life and mm. all the, those spaces that sometimes people would um, describe the success of being, you know, partners in life and partner in business or music or whatever. The, the ability to separate things for us is um, how everything is blended together. And it's, it's a matter of luck because we are both people who you know, think, live, and feel creativity all the time. So it, it, it is blended with life anyway. And then again, the other thing is that we are both very considerate and very thoughtful towards one another. And we think about how to make uh, each other happy. So it doesn't really matter on what form of the relationship it is. It's just, it just comes from huge amount of wanting to make someone else happy. And I think the, the one thing that we've learned to do very well over the years, um, and we've improved in it, is to be able to be in the same place but be alone, because that is something that we're able to do. We can really exist physically in the same space, but just be in different worlds. It's, it's possible. Do you think in terms of the people who work with the two of you and collaborate with the two of you, is it easier for them or more challenging for them to deal with a team like that? Because you have such a strong, I imagine such a strong vision walking into it that it's like, you know, it's probably a lot. Yeah, it really depends on the person. I think for some people, um, it's a really interesting point. I mean, for some people, it's intimidating for sure uh, because it's a, it's a, I don't know how you say that in English, but you know, you walk into uh, an ambush. Some, yeah, basically, <laughs> I, I was going to say something from out of the, the the world of you know a war. Yeah. You know, so you have something that is so so together, and yeah. 
for some people, I think it's it's a very intimidating thing. I think for for many people and the people that we end up continuing to work with, I think they see how that is exactly the opposite because I think it's harder to convince one mind that is so sure of something than, you know, two people who seem to kind of always try to figure out ways to find the right way. You know, mm-hmm. our minds are so adjust to the flexibility and that is what makes us, we listen to people. Um, mm-hmm. So the people who are able to go through and pass that stage of intimidation from that, you know, they earn people who are very well trained to listening that is all we do you have to listen to one another how did your music musical identity change when you met ori and you started working together i'm not even trying to say his name in hebrew by the way so i'm just i'm just just straight soft american r for him ori ori, ori. yeah i think ori. on his name it sounds beautiful ori but the noga is weird noga we say it in noga 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 just be very flat about noga. it <laughs> Was there a question there? <laughs> how did your music change? How did your art, art? Yeah, how did your work change when you met? Oh, radically. I mean, uh, before starting to work with Ori, I was uh, basically a jazz performer, a jazz singer, and um, I was very much into the acoustic jazz world. So I had my trio, piano, contrabass, upright bass, bass and uh, drums. And I used to write songs that were very heavily influenced by jazz. And I recorded an entire album of my material. And I think what, but what fundamentally changed because genres, you know, I come back to jazz every now and then. That is so, you know, that's fluid. But what changed fundamentally was um, <laughs> that it, a lot of it came from, a place of really wanting to prove my musicianship because um, I've uh, gained my knowledge in, in music um, very late in life and I had to do it really quick. And in a way, I was um, really trying to prove myself hmm. for a long time. And, and it sounded like that. It sounded like a really intellectual sounding music. And at some point, Ori came and he was like, listen. This is uncool. <laughs> you know, it has to be cool. It has to, it has to be, it has to come from, you know, your heart and not from your, from your head. And that is the big change. So, you know, I've kind of had to go through the process of forgetting everything that I knew, not really forgetting, but kind of being able to put that aside and let something I guess, deeper and more personal and closer come in. I think that is, you know, the one thing that I really can say that I earned from meeting Ori was like, yeah, forget about that shit. Just, you know, be be stupid and do the, the cool stuff. I think sometimes what happens with recovering jazz musicians is that they <laughs> are haunted by that legacy and they don't always know whether or not they should outright reject all of it or if there are elements that they can keep. And I, I think that the way you frame it and the way Ori frames it as, well, listen to your heart, not to your your mind, is a wonderful way of approaching it because when I learned that you had made a jazz record, which, by the way, I would love to hear, even if it's intellectual. I mean, at some point, I, I, wish, I wish there were some way to hear it. And it's amazing that it's not 
discoverable, at least I haven't been able to find it, because so many, especially young artists who release music on Spotify, like when they're 16 or 18 or whatever, it, it follows them their whole career. And they just wish that, you know, it would go away. And you amazingly yeah. manage not to release it so nobody can hear it. But I would be curious to hear it. And I, and I would be curious to know how much of your identity has remained through this transition. Dude, I mean, I have no idea where that music is. I mean, I know where it is physically. <laughs> I have that hard drive. Yeah. It's an old one, and I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's there. I think it's gone. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I, I keep talking about, you know, that brave step that I did, just throwing all that music out the window. But the fact is that the hard drive was just broken. I mean, <laughs> I, it didn't work at some point, and I just. You know, and I met Ori at the same time and I I just gave it up. I yeah. gave up, you know, trying to recover it. And so it's there physically, but I have no idea if it still exists. And every now and then I get people, you know, sending me messages like, wow, like, where's that song yeah. after? I had a song called After or where's the song Misty View? <laughs> oh, they were really cute songs, really melodic. And I used to sing like my voice was higher in the pitch. And I don't know, I, maybe someday I would um, find the time and invest the time in <laughs> trying to recover that music. But I do think that my luck is that I was never a really, really uh, well-taught or well-educated musician. I was, I was haunted by the, you know, the need to, to be that. But I was never that. So to step out of that and find my heart again was yeah. not really a, a, a hard task. I mean, I, I was not really able to become a proper intellectual musician. So I, it wasn't a much of a step back for me to, you know, forget about the technical side of it and, and reach back to my heart and soul. So what led you to be a singer? I mean, you keep alluding to the idea that you, or, or a composer, a musician, whatever, that you, that you came late to it, that your musical education started late, but you, you did attend essentially a conservatory. Right. So, I mean, so uh, what, what drew you to that, that life? What drew you to being a musician? The reason why I call it like a you know, late bloomer thing is that I mean, I'm, I have been into music and have been, uh, you know, singing and playing instruments from a very early age. But the thing was that um, I used to switch between instruments all the time. And so I would, um, you know, start piano lessons and stop after two months and then go to guitar and percussion, etc. etc. I'm one of those people. I fall in love with something so heavily and so hard and then I overkill it mm -hmm. and then... I just move on to the next thing. Happens to me with music. It doesn't happen to me with people. I'm very, very loyal. Yeah. And then, so I kind of got very, very little knowledge in many different things, but not in-depth knowledge in, in any of it. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I grew up. I grew out of my, you know, wild craziness. And I was able to sit down on my ass and actually go deeper into things. And that was the point when I was like, I just want to be able to, you know, take a string quartet and be able to write for them, you know, to write a piece or later on an orchestra. And that was when I was like going really hard into, you know, learning how to read notes and all that stuff, that technical stuff. And so that is, you know, why I say that it came late, but music was always there, but I was just not able to give it, you know, the 
discipline. I learned discipline late.、Mm. That is the thing, the、mm. bottom line. What were your early influences? At home, we used to listen to Beatles very、um, obsessively. And so that was the main thing. And then around it was Leonard Cohen, Rod Stewart. Um, Simon and Garfunkel,、um, some classical music, a lot of Israeli music. There's beautiful, beautiful things in that、um, repertoire.、Um, Johnny Mitchell. That was like the early, early, early stages of you know my music education. And then、um, later on, it became a heavy influence from my older brother who used to listen to heavy rock and that stuff. So it became Metallica and Iron Maiden and that stuff. <laughs> and then it became prog rock and bands like、um, Genesis and Camel. And then later on to stuff like Opeth. You know, you know, heavy. Swedish metal that is very heavy on the, you know, changes of rhythm and stuff、yeah. like that, and that led me to jazz.、Uh-huh. That、and、led you to jazz. Yeah, weird, weirdly enough, math metal I, led you to jazz. Because my beginning with jazz was not, you know, the classical stuff. That it was, it, it started from modern jazz and kind of there, there, there are similarities. It's weird in the brain approach, you know, in the let's make music that sounds really smart and.、Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came into jazz singers, so I started to sing and explore Ella Fitzgerald like crazy, and Billie Holiday, and you know all the mothers of jazz, Nina Simone, and that led me to Flying Lotus, which led me to where to you、hip-hop. are. Yes, that's what led you to hip hop. Oh yeah, Flying Lotus. That's it. What is the Israeli relationship to hip hop? Is there a hip hop community in Israel? Are there other hip hop artists? I, mean, I don't know anything about the scene. I, I'm a little bit aware of the jazz scene in Israel, in part because there are great Israeli jazz musicians in New York. But I don't know that I've been able to identify the same when it comes to hip hop. At least not yet. Well, I think Israeli hip hop is really hard to export when it's in Hebrew, obviously, but also. At- Every any music coming from Israel is hard to export, but when it comes to jazz, I think I don't know why, but、um, because it's mostly instrumental. There is a big hip hop scene in Israel. I think like everywhere else in the world, we are in in a hip hop era.、Hmm. Hip hop is mainstream right now, so the same thing is happening in Israel. It has been around since the '90s, and、uh, but now it's really heavy, and there's a lot of、um, there's some really great. Artists who rap in Hebrew, and the, but the the thing is, the problem is, it's really really hard to write verses in Hebrew. It's really hard to write music that sounds good、um, in Hebrew generally. But then when it comes to hip hop, it's really hard to put that in rhythm because most words in Hebrew have minimum of two syllables, which makes it really hard to you know to put it on a rhythm. When in English, it's so easy. Because everything is one, so it's like you can say whatever the fuck you want, and it will sound great. I went to the beach, and then you know it's really, really one, two, three, four. But then when you have two, three, four, it's so hard, and it's hard to rhyme and make it sound good, and、hmm. also have a meaning. So there are very few who do it 
well, but the ones who do it well do it incredibly well. And it's big, you know, people love hip hop here and are heavily, heavily influenced by American hip hop. It's, it's big. Why do you say it's hard to export music of any kind from Israel? Well, there's um, many answers to that question. I think it's hard to export music from places that aren't um, native English speaking places, you know, that is one thing. Um, but then when you take music in Hebrew specifically, that really goes into that very narrow niche of people who like exotic stuff, you know, and then you have to really sound exotic. You have to sound like you are Arabic or whatever. It, it has to sound like a tent. <laughs> it has to sound like a tent. There has to be hand drumming. There has to be yeah. some kind of body flute, drumming, body drumming. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, weird Arabic scales and yes. that stuff. I don't know. So obviously, yeah, I mean, I, I like to listen to, to music in English because I know the language and it's harder for me to listen to music in Swedish and German. And it's, right. I mean, it's very, very natural. But, you know, I think that at the same time, you also have the, you know, I think there's more of an issue for people to listen to music coming from Israel for, for the obvious reason. Wait, but is the obvious reason political or is it something beyond politics? I think uh, the political reason. I don't think many people, you know, listen to um, to a tune and then, oh my God, I love that. I love that tune. And then they go check out the biography and see, oh my God, she's from Israel. And then they stop listening to it. I think I would like to believe that most people aren't like that. But I think some people wouldn't even go and, and check it out. I don't know. I hope it's it's not many people, but I think you know it has its stamp. It has it has its, its stamp. It colors things. It does color things, and and you know you. I think you have this kind of like wonderful advantage in that you have a subtle accent, but you have a, obviously a very high level of English. It seems like maybe that's kind of unusual for. I mean, I don't know how your English compares to kind of your contemporaries in the scene. It seems like you have a very kind of deep relationship with the language. People in Israel have a really good level of English. I think um, I th it's a thing here because people are, you know, Israel wants to be America. I don't know if you know that. I mean, Israel is the little sister of America and people here try so hard to be, you know, it's the, the influence is so heavy. Sometimes it's embarrassing. And when I, when I, when I speak English and my accent sounds American, I'm sometimes like, uh, I'm cringing over myself because it's so heavily influenced by American television and, and songs. I don't know. There's something about it, like looking up to, you know, something that, um, instead of being, you know, you. And for me, <laughs> I think I have a good ear for language, but I was just too lazy to learn other languages. But yeah, my, my, my education in English is from, from music. I was always like really curious to, to know the meaning of the words. I mean, you say that you're sometimes embarrassed that you have an, uh, your accent sounds American. And on the other hand, you seem very focused on being able to export this thing to America and the rest of the world. And to yeah. be able to do it credibly enough that people don't even ask where you're from. It's true. It's always that duality. Yes. You know, that's where I live. <laughs> I also am kind of dealing with this idea that you say, you know, Israel is the little younger sibling of America or wants to be American so badly. Because 
I think as a kind of a secular American Jew, I have a very confused relationship with Israel. I think that the cultures have kind of diverged. And I look at the kind of Israeli person, Mediterranean person, and it doesn't, I don't see myself <laughs> reflected back. And it's so confounding to me to think that a hundred years ago, we sort of all started in the same place, many of us, and that these two cultures have diverged and developed simultaneously. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really complex issue that we're talking about here because I don't even know what it looks like from the outside. I, I, I know what it looks like from the outside because I consume right. the media. You know, I consume media from, from American media. Yeah. So I know what it looks like from the outside. I, know, I also have no idea what it is from the inside. The thing is that it is so diverse and complex and, you know, looking at the stuff that's happening here that makes you think like, what, what, like who the fuck are these people? Like, yeah. I, I don't know if they are first or third world country. Um, it's really confusing. And also it really varies because you have people here who came from so many places in the world and it's still so young. So you know, young. Israel. So incredibly yeah, young. It's 70 years, 74, I think. So you have people who are, you know, the sons and daughters of people who came from Yemen and came from, I don't know, Poland. So everyone is like from somewhere. Everyone are immigrants. You would think that immigrants, new immigrants, second generation immigrants would treat immigrants differently hmm. or, you know, behave. Right. You know, I have my my opinions about things, but I really I really think that culture is such an interesting thing and to try to see yourself in a in a culture is something so complicated especially when it comes to culture that is such a melting pot of so many different things so i feel the same way even though i'm from here i feel that there are so many things in the israeli temperament that i can really relate to you know how honest and straightforward people here tend to be and when I step outside and when I meet people from other places and how polite people can be sometimes I'm like okay <laughs> I'm not like you <laughs> I mean when something is wrong I just say hey something's wrong something's broken you know it seems like one of the things that people tend to assume about you is that you're political there's this analysis of your music that I've seen since I discovered you in which people say, oh, she's political. There's something political going on. And you have constantly responded by saying, it's not political, it's personal. And to the extent that I live in a political world, then yes, it may come across as political, but I'm speaking personally. Right. But I wonder if the fact that your personal narrative is taking place in a very politicized environment and as you say, the, the Israeli temperament is to sort of call it like you see it, speak the truth. And if something is fucked up or broken, say that's fucked up and broken, that it gets perceived as political. Yeah, I mean, I think the fun thing about living in this world and uh, watching um, America or the rest of the world as an outsider is like that. I feel like. Well, that's everyone's problem right now because everything is political. Mm -hmm. Like Israel used to be, I felt like in 
2017 when I started touring with music I was like you know a freak because everything that I do or say or where I go to or whether the festival accepted me or not everything is political sometimes it, it's it's tiring you know whether an artist comes in here or not or whether you know a venue chooses to to have me everything is political everything about my existence and now the same thing happens i think to everyone everything is political and and that is what makes everything you know so intense but eventually i think political artists they have to be artists who have some kind of intention with their music to create a political change or a social change and for me that was never something that i that i thought was even possible i mean music did stuff like that to me you know listening to uh let england shake by pj harvey mm -hmm. an intensely political album changed the way i look at music but you know that that music can be something that really expresses that Did it make some kind of change in the world in a political level, in a social level? I don't know. I think the one thing that political music can do or that a song can do or protest song, protest songs are, you can say, political. Yes. What they can do is, you know, they cannot convince someone who doesn't believe in the content or the perspective that the song presents. They, you cannot convince someone to step out of their own opinions by you know playing a song to them but what you can do is make your own people you know the people who think the same way as you feel better about what they think or feel like they are a part of something or feel like they're not alone and for a long time i was like yeah but i don't know i'm kind of preaching to the choir yeah. and like the people who listen to my music i mean what am i trying to do and then i realized that that is what i'm supposed to do i'm, I'm supposed to to help people understand that they're not, you know, the only ones out there who who think the way, you know, they think. That is a really interesting distinction, you know, the difference between trying to somehow convince people of something as opposed to just reaching out to people and letting them understand that there are other people out there who feel the same way that they do. And I think you're right. I think that's what music when it reaches us does is it makes us feel a little less alone. And uh you know, it takes me back to seeing you in the tent and thinking like, oh, who is this? I want to know who these people are. I, I think in an odd way for an international artist, as you say, you know, you were getting used to traveling and you were, you know, been on the road a lot. That's been your life. And now you're you've had to stay grounded for the last six months. In a strange way, I wonder if you have been able to and will be able to reach more people internationally by staying home and making videos than you would be playing medium to large size venues in, you know, a handful of cities in the United States. Is that a technical question? Because, you know, when you when you post a video on YouTube, you can get a million people to watch it. And then I don't know if I can get a million people in a venue. But I know that 
what I can do in shows is something that I'm not able to do in videos or even in live videos in intent that make people feel like they're less alone. <laughs> like that, that video was seriously so strong in that sense because people miss shows, shows yeah. so much. And I think that I really, really, really hope, I mean, that we're not gonna, you know, that, that we're not gonna get used to the situation of not going to live shows. I, I don't want to get used to it because I, I do think that something incredibly, you know, so different happens in shows. And I do think that I was able to convince people who are not convinced by performing to him. I mean, my, my, my music mm. has its strength in as a recording and it has a whole different um, energy as a live show. I mean, I think that is the case in, in with many artists, but I think maybe with me, it's, it's even, yeah, I think many people told me like, I was not into your music hmm. until I, I saw you live, huh. like literally like say it as it is, you know, I got that a lot. Like, yeah. man, I, I'm not into your music, <laughs> but then I saw you live and then I got it. I understood it. So, you know, for me, it's, yeah, it's just, you know, some, some stream of connection and energy that I feel that, yeah, a big, big, big loss for now. For now. Hopefully. Until 2022. Until 2022. Because you said. That's so you, what they say. Is that what, you, is that what your team is telling you? Don't book anything until 2022? No, they're booking and canceling and booking and canceling. Thank you, my team. You're amazing. They keep working, even though, you know, nothing is happening, but they keep trying to, they postpone it and postpone. But I've read, you know, 2022, I've read that number and it, it stuck in my head. How does that make you feel about what you should be working on? It's a, it's a big thing and it's, it's a really depressing question because, <laughs> I mean you know, artists make a living from shows. And I'm right now at the point, at, at a place that I was, you know, I was lucky to be able to make enough money with my first album to actually, you know, sit here for six months and not do something else to, to, to make money. All my friends are working in other jobs, like, like the music, the profession of being a musician here is vanishing because the industry here is very very small and poor to begin with so what i see in front of my eyes and i think i think that is true about a lot of things you know people are unemployed everywhere and unemployment is is you know that is a pandemic in the world right now and the people who are like us who still have you know kind of like their jobs but you could see the future in in people around you because because the more that this thing continues to go on you know that that could go there so i i have no idea what's going to happen in 18 months but i do think that it's going to take a lot for me to stop doing that i'm going to i'm going to do some loops in the air and i'm going to i'm going to do yeah a lot but i think maybe yeah People will figure out ways if if this continues. Smarter people than you and me would make it happen. You know the ability to actually uh, put on shows that sound and look great and are actually live, and that people can pay a ticket and mm -hmm. watch their favorite artists in proper platforms. I mean, I saw the kind of intimate home duo 
show on YouTube that you did with Ori. It's earlier yeah. in the pandemic. I loved it. I thought it was really beautiful. And I love the limitation of it. And I think that you come highly prepared for this because you have been operating within limitation on your li- in your live show already. I mean, you toured with the electronic drummer for a long time and f- had to figure out how to put an effective show together with two people. So limitation seems to be kind of a kind of a, your friend. Oh, that's true. I'm an offspring of limitations. Woo! That's what you call this chapter. An off- Is that even, you know, something that you can say? Offspring of limitation? I think I understand what you mean, but it's interesting that you <laughs> asked that question because, yes, of course you can say it, but you have just pointed to another question for me, which is, okay, you have a great facility in the English language. All the references that you list from PJ Harvey to Joni Mitchell, any American person could have listed all of the same people that you listed. And yet, this is not your first language. And I imagine that there are times when you're putting something together where you think to yourself, I hope this is a thing that I'm saying. Is this, can I say this? I mean, I'll give you an example. I don't pop with that. Is something that I think that is totally understandable and feels uh, idiomatically real. And yet, I don't think I've ever heard an American person say that. No, it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't. Um, that's my way of saying that's a phrase that doesn't exist. I don't pop with that. <laughs> I know that. You know, with songs, I I check, you know. Yeah. I, I have people who who worry about me, you know, who are friends. <laughs> no, I don't pop with that used to be, you know, I don't F with that. That yeah. used to be that. And then we we had to do a clean version. You know, how, how can I replace that? And then it became I don't pop with that. And then we just left it in bo- both versions because... I don't pop with that. I felt like, you know, we both felt like we wanted it to be a thing. We wanted to start a slang. It didn't work, by the way. No one, like sometimes people are like, I don't pop with that. And then I'm like, yay. But it happens very, very rarely. I think you got to double down. T-shirts, definitely dig into the hashtag as much as possible. Maybe try to buy the domain if you can. I mean, just go at it. You know. Oh my God, (laughs) you're a genius. Yeah, but no, Just, when I when I have, you know, a conversation with, you know, proper yeah. English speakers, I mean, I hope that you forgive me. <laughs> I don't know. That's the only thing I can do. And if someone dares to say, you know, that is not even a thing, what you just said. I yeah. just go back at them and say, you know, can you say one sentence in another language? Because that's the thing. Usually when you speak to someone who talks English, they don't speak a, another language. But they're also not trying to exist in the popular culture space of this other language. I mean, that's why I think what you're doing is kind of brave and interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm super curious about it. I think this is a moment to do it because what you're doing is absorbing a lot of American influences and sort of reframing them. I mean, I don't even think you're trying to reframe them. You're just trying to make them yourself, given who you are, mm-hmm. and then export them back. Right. Even though you didn't mean to make the tent, I think that the tent does somehow speak to something about, not, not in some exoticism, hummus, and, yeah. <laughs> but just like that you're coming from Israel, that you are coming from, even if it's just the filter is your language and the relationship with English and that you have a, you know, you also you speak Hebrew. I don't speak Hebrew. I speak good Spanish. You do. Yeah. So I know from my experience in Spanish that there are certain things that you can say in one language that you really 
can't say in the other language. Not right. not an exact translation. Sometimes I'm really, really frustrated, especially in situations like that. You know, like when we're talking, and I I know for sure that what I'm trying to say, you know, I'm not able to say what I'm trying to say. I just forget. Sometimes I black out on you know how to say certain things, and building a sentence in English is so different, but. I really think that what what I was able to do with this album, you know, because of the trying not to be that exotic, sometimes you you're expected to be. I don't know if you're expected, but the thing is that I got advice from some people here when I was mm -hmm. just starting to, you know, incorporate that into my music or into my look, you know, just go with it. Just go with the fact that you come from here and but of doing course. that But doing that would just, you know, I'm, that's not what I, you know, that's not what I am. What I was able to do with this album and I, and I really love is that, you know, I have that Hebrew thing and Hebrew is such a hardcore language <laughs> and I love it so much. And I have a lot of Hebrew, a lot of Hebrew in this album, you know, ah. here and there, you know, I have my mom, you know, right before a chorus yelling, which is like chorus you know go to the chorus she's like you know telling me what to do the entire album in hebrew and then i have which means oh no and you know those things i take the things in hebrew that sound like you know cool noises or sounds and yes and i have them like so you know i i do my best you said the word at the beginning of this conversation authenticity Mm -hmm. And, you know, you said that there's some expectation that you're supposed to take the Israeli authenticity and exploit it in some way that seems exotic. But in fact, what you were really saying is that's totally not authentic to who you are. That's not how you live. That's not what you look like. That's not what you do. Exactly. And there's no such thing. You know, really, there is no such thing. And it's right. But I would answer that, that there is also no American authenticity. If there's no Israeli authenticity, then in fact, authenticity is a myth. It doesn't exist. That is very, very true. I hope that people start, you know, I hope that we, I'm talking about people and I'm, I'm saying that to myself as well. I really hope that someday we will all be able to just forget about that. I think one of the things that happens with Israeli artists, I would imagine in the United States anyway, I know that you're not only playing to the States, that you have Europe, that you have Asia, you have any, you know, you, you. But I think what often happens with artists who sing in Hebrew in the United States is that they get a little bit railroaded into the Jewish space. Right. There's a lane that is kind of popular culture that interacts with and crosses into the popular Jewish space. Yeah. And, you know, the benefits are that it's a target that you can hit and identify. True. And the limitations are that it's small incredibly limited and you know it's not only artists who sing in hebrew i think artists from israel who want to uh tour the u.s if they don't try really hard and really focus on not going there they would at some point get there you know to the <laughs> i don't know jewish community clubs or whatever they have universities colleges i mean that is that is a really easy way to go and i think You don't have to sing in Hebrew to get that opportunity. You know, yeah, we're inviting you. We have the money. Come in. It's too easy. Has it been offered to you? Have you done any of, any of that kind of stuff? Have you avoided it? I've avoided it. <laughs> no, I mean, 
it didn't yeah. make sense and oh yeah. i mean yeah that's not where i want to go with things i really i'd really rather do it you know the right way i don't know speaking of doing it the right way you have a new single coming out next week in which a belligerent robot arm throws you around uh, a small room <laughs> like a rag doll in the video right I think that the video for your song, You So Done, is like the opposite of the tent video. (laughs) One of them is this collaborative community, enclosed space, a bunch of people. It feels very handmade. The other one feels very literally robotic, computerized. It's also like it's just you. It's a very isolated and kind of uh, mechanical experience. It's very cold. It's a very cold experience. Yeah, this one, I mean, that idea was offered to me by the director and I don't tend to, um, you know, just take ideas as they are. Usually I'm, you know, just I, I either I suggest the idea or come up with the idea for the video or I work with the director on the idea for the for the video. But with Indy, Indy Haidt, who's the person who directed this video and the one before it and the one before it for views and for no news on TV. That was like, okay, this is the third time we're making a video together. I think it's time for me to trust you because I hated the idea of a robot in my video. Like I don't, it doesn't, I don't pop with that. You know, that's not my thing. (laughs) Robots. Like it sounded, you know, like a science fiction type of idea for me. And like, I was like, okay, let's try to develop something else. And he kept coming back with the robot idea because he, the sound of the, of the hook sounded to him like a robot. But then, you know, I, <laughs> the thing with Indy is, you know, he's a visual artist. Um, and then whenever he has an idea, he's a visual artist who is heavily influenced by, by the sounds and the music and is very... Um, particular about you know he he hears the smallest and most delicate layers of the song and that is how he builds his visual vision and and I was like but listen Indy I really need to um have a meaning behind this thing I really need to understand like why why is there a robot in a song like you so done and then we started talking and talking about it and um with Oli, who, you know, we wrote the song together and the song is so incredibly raw and personal. Um, I mean, yeah, how can you take the most personal song that you ever wrote and make such a cold and mechanical visual to it? But then that is exactly what happened. I feel like this is a very, very painful video. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable to watch. But it it is eventually my most personal video as well. Tell me about the song and why it's one of your most personal songs. I tend to tackle sometimes, you know, global, political, social issues in my songs, mainly because my personal life tends to be, ever since I have Ori in my life, it's not that urgent for me to talk about, you know, relationships because it's, it's just, it's it's good and it's it's going well and the, the what i have urge to write about is usually stuff outside of that that really annoy me or get me upset 
But then, you know, I really had that, you know, one year ago, I had a flashback of a, a very, very uh, dark time in my life before, you know, way before I met Ori, when I was like in young, confused, not really sure what I was in the world. And kind of inside that empty space of not really knowing who's who and what is what, I got into a, a series of really, really bad poisonous relationships with guys some really bad dudes and you know I kind of invited that into my life and as I said before but then one of them was just really incredibly I would even go far and say emotionally abusive and I got to a point that I was really um, not myself it just kind of happened gradually I don't even know if that happened um, intentionally, but what happened was that I was basically becoming, you know, the person that I was with and mm-hmm. some fucked up shit happened. And, you know, I put that aside after long hours of conversations with my friends and my family, and they kind of pulled me out of that situation, kind of made it, made a continuous intervention in my life and really pulled me out of that situation. And, you know, I'm with Ori and I have, I have that victory in my hand, but seven hmm. years into my relationship with Ori and then three years more, 10 years from then, I flashed back to it a year ago and it was so intense and I wrote the song with Ori. So it's like a really, it's an incredibly dark story and a really tough time in my life. But also it really tells about the biggest um, victory. It's a, it's a victory anthem for me because it is really um, a proof that it is possible to step out of, you know, patterns and things you thought that, you would never be able to solve softly just break it to me softly be straight with me but gently tender before you kill me bow bow oy, oy, oy. calmly i don't freak out in public take me outside and crush me over a cup of coffee that is that is you so done the song and then you know the robot there just basically tossing me around the room but the robot is not the character who's you know the it's just something that represents visually that violence but that is not the violent character the violent character is actually me when you think about it a robot at least up until now because we have not reached the uh the singularity. We haven't come to the singularity yet, but so far, robots can't be evil. It can't be ill-willed. It can't be anything. It's only what we feed into it. A robot is just the result of what we program it to be. So in a funny way, I think that imagery of the robot was probably pretty apt. Thank you so much for saying that because that really helps me to, you know, sometimes you make something and, and you work on something and it's really hard for you to describe it, but you just really describe it like, like literally... Yeah, something that I was not able to do until now. Because, yeah, a robot, it's just there to, you know, to do whatever we tell it to do. And we are talking in this video about muscle memory. And muscle memory Mm -hmm. is such a fucked up concept, you know, that your muscles have that, you know, that ability to learn and process and and remember things. And 
And in this video, what we imagined was that we take the muscle memory out of a mm -hmm. character and put it inside the robot. And then mm -hmm. th that is what it does. So thank you for describing it so beautifully. Can you repeat it so I remember it next time that it's hard? <laughs> You know, robots are not good or bad. Robots mm -hmm. are anything we program them to be. So it's not that the robot is hurting you. As you said, you're hurting yourself, ultimately. Somebody had to tell that robot to, to abuse you. And, and in fact, you programmed the robot to abuse you. Thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's ugly. It's funny that you say it's beautiful because it's so ugly. But, you know, you said this thing about how, like, you, you know, you like to write songs about things that upset you or frustrate you. And there is an element of that, right? Like, I think... You know, in just having this hour conversation with you, you seem to be actually a rather agreeable and lighthearted person, at least mm -hmm. you present that way. And your persona, I understand it's not no longer really Dasha, but that that part of you that comes out in the writing is a little bit more hard-edged. Do you think about writing music or writing lyrics that are like celebrating the things that you love? Yeah. I think I'm getting there gradually. I'm an angry person. I, I'm a nice person, but I'm angry. And I'm upset about many things. So I kind of feel like it will it will take me some time to, you know, just celebrate. And maybe that's the thing. I celebrate, celebrate all the time. But then when it comes to my best option of processing, you know, everything that is happening, I choose to do it you know, with things that I really need to analyze and process. I don't waste my songs on, you know, things <laughs> that, you know, it's a, it's a therapy session. It costs a lot of money. To make a song. Oh, yeah. Money and energy and blood and tears. I talked to Achinoam Nini a couple of years ago, who oh I've known God. forever. I've known her since I was a, a teenager. Really? Because Like as an artist or... She and Gildor yeah. came to the States when I was in high school as part of exactly the kind of touring that you avoid. Oh, yeah. They came through and played at uh, some Jewish community thing in my hometown. And while they were there, they also came and spoke to my high school. And I met them then. And incredibly, I was performing one of my first concerts as a musician that that time that they were here and they came to see me play and so over the wow. years I've been in touch with them going all the way back to when I was a kid really anyway I interviewed them a couple of years ago for this podcast and sort of got the other version of the of a the career that you can have as an Israeli contemporary artist I mean obviously they're from another generation the music is very different the audience is very different but one of the things that she said was that in her career she feels that Hebrew operates almost as if it were Portuguese that she's found a way to use the exoticism of the sounds and just let it be a kind of a romance language that people don't understand yeah I think the way she sings in Hebrew I think she kind of makes it round. She makes everything sound better and sound more round. And I think I think it's great for an outsider ear. But I think yeah. for someone who's used to hearing the language, it sounds like, yeah, she's just, you know, um, how do you say? Like when you scratch something to make it round. She's polishing it. Yeah, yeah she's polishing the language. So, so it's cool. Love me to my lips.
You know, the last thing that you can say about Achinom Nini is that she's polishing. I mean, she is, in fact, a political artist. She's not necessarily singing about politics in her songs, but she is a political artist. She became gradually more and more invested in making a change through her music. And she has, I think she sacrificed a lot to do so. And I have a lot of respect to her for that. Mm -hmm. I think she's, she's very, very brave. You look at a career like hers and that's why you say you're not a political artist because while what you write about may be commentary, you're not necessarily trying to use your music for political purposes. Yeah, I mean, I, I would really love to hear some examples, you know, of how music was able to create that change, you know. Huh, I don't know. Did it ever really happen? Did it ever really happen? You know, this is, so I had a conversation last week, actually with my dad, who's also a musician and a big thinker, and we did an interview for this podcast for his birthday, and one of the things that he brought up was how in the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, music has not really been a part of the experience. Whereas in the United States in the 60s during the civil rights movement, music was a big part of the engine. You know, it was was connective for people. Mm -hmm. A lot of songs came out of that experience that were both popular and also either protest songs or music that brought people together. And in this experience, it's, it's not happening. Yeah. I don't think it's a commentary so much about music. I think it's about the way we get our music and the fact that we're all so isolated and we, we all find our music in these individual ways. But I thought it was a, a really good point to make that music is not moving the dial politically the way it used to. No, it doesn't. And I kind of have a new perspective on that because like everywhere in the world, in Israel right now, it's a big protest time. People are kind of seeing things rising about about the surface, um, especially when it comes to how the government handles taking care of our crisis because we've ga- given so much to this country, especially when it comes to people who, you know, here you have to serve the army. It's not just paying tax. People actually sacrifice their lives and lose their friends for the existence of the country or for this idea. So for many people here right now, it's like, well, but, but what the fuck? Like when shit hit the fan, like, where are you? Um, so that is happening right now and people are out in the street. The difference between paying taxes and then expecting something from your government and serving in the army and then expecting something from your government, it's a difference because you have really given of your life. Everybody has had to give of their life. Yeah. And so yeah. They, maybe they can expect more, ask more of the government. Yeah, that's the sad situation. You know, you have to serve the army and the army is as a defense uh, system is necessary um, for Israel's existence right now. It's fucked up that we need that. And it's not only used as a as a defense system that sometimes it sometimes it attacks. I have my opinions on it, but 
you know, yeah, when you give your best years, you know, you're 18 and you, you give your best years at the minimum and sometimes you give your life to it and sometimes you give your mental stability mm -hmm. for it because people are left with, um, you know, I have that mm -hmm. in my house, my home, you know, my dad is, you know, has experienced things that left him and, and that is so common, you know, you, you have that look of, mm -hmm. you know, wow, but you, you people here walk around traumatized everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's a traumatized nation it's insane yes. i think that's the part of it that is very interesting to me what is the point of view of a person who's raised in a traumatized nation and using music to talk about it and i think that that is in there i think it whether or not it's in the just the flavor of what you're doing or if it's in the stories that you're telling i think it is there i think it's an israeli point of view absolutely i don't deny that i think it's very yeah. very true it's a big big part of my story and i think it also you know, kind of became something that I'm more uh, proud of. The more I yeah. uh, was talking to people, I realized that the, it differentiates me, you know. <laughs> it's a, it's my story. You can't have that perspective on yourself until you meet other people. You can't have yeah. that perspective. But then when you meet other people, and, and I yeah. had the luck, I was lucky enough to do that. I, I realized that I'm, <laughs> I have that edge. I look at the world kind of differently sometimes you have protests here that they actually set up a stage and you get artists here come up on stage and play their songs and they get invited and it's a really good opportunity for the artist because yes. many people see you and then um, it's great for protesters because it's kind of more like a festival rather than a protest but the protests that are taking place right now in Jerusalem, in front of the prime minister's house, are so much stronger because they don't have a stage and artists are not on stage. Artists are, are on ground. They're walking mm -hmm. with everyone else. And you see, you know, mega celebrities like walking the streets with everyone else. And that is political. That is, I think that is my new perspective. Yes. Well, that's when you said before, you know, show me an example of how the music or an artist has made any political change. Mm -hmm. And I think even, as you said with Achinom, it's not that the music is political, it's that she used her cultural position, her voice, the fact that anybody would listen to anything she said or did yeah. to say what she thought. So it's not so much in the music, but it's in the, the access that she had to people. True. And I think... It's just so, it, why am I saying that it's so brave to do what Achinomini yeah. is doing? Yeah. Is because, not just because how she is now perceived by people from Israel. Because right now she is a big part of society here. She's like, okay, she, she, she chose a side. And when you, yeah. when you don't choose a side, which is, you know, something that is more similar to what I do, even though like when you dive deeper into interviews and stuff like yeah. that, you know which side I'm on. Yeah. But um, I'm basically not choosing a side. I'm not I'm not being so verbal, as verbal as she is about, you know, the occupation. It's, it's a big part mm -hmm. of, you know, what she's talking about. And besides being brave and sacrificing a big part of her audience, it requires to know so much about what is happening here to actually yes. be able to talk about it. And I feel like I have a lot to learn before I can do that. And, and also I feel like the more I learn, I become more confused and <laughs> the more I read, I realize that 
a lot of it is just not true. I'm at a stage of being so confused about what, what's true and what's not. And I'm, I'm at a place of not being able to really give hope to anybody. So I kind of feel like I should just shut up. I mean, I have nothing good to say. I can't inspire anybody. Um, I used to say, you know, after Off the Radar, a lot of the, a lot of the songs were really political. I started to get asked about Israel constantly, mm-hmm. even when, um, you know, it wasn't a conversation about the songs. It was just, so you come from, you know, Tel Aviv and how does it feel to live in Israel? And I found myself talking about Israel more than I'm talking about my music. And I mean, I think I've done that with you today too. I'm, I'm very aware of it. And on the one hand, we? I feel like it's, I feel like well, it's about, I don't know. It's that combination of like, yes, I want to take this advantage to just talk to you about what it's like to be in where you are right now as it relates to the music and who you are right now as it relates to the music. Yeah. But I'm aware of that also, that in talking to you about what, you, what you're making and what you're doing and what you're thinking about, that in the background is constantly this understanding that it's happening in Israel. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not complaining. I get why it's interesting. I really understand it. And I, I had to go through a long process of trying to explain what it is. I'm still not doing a great job at it because it constantly keeps changing. And, you know, being so verbal about something that just keeps changing rapidly is hard. But I just think that in order to really do that, in order to really say, okay, people are going to continue to ask me about Israel, no matter yeah. how much I hide, no matter mm-hmm. how much my accent becomes, uh, you know, yeah, unnoticeable, yeah. I'm, I'm going to get asked that question. And I'm just not able to provide any answers because everything is incredibly confusing and full of fake information and spins and... Things are really weird and fucked up here. That's the truth. I think it's everywhere, but here it kind of feels like we got to a point that I have no idea whether this country is going to continue to be a democracy. You know, that is something that I have on my mind. Are we on a path to become something else? Well, in that regard, it does sound then like the younger sibling of America, because that is exactly what we're thinking about here, too. I mean, you're dealing with 70, 80 years of history. We have, in the scheme of things, not that much more than you, but we have a few hundred years. And it is shocking to see the whole thing stripped apart so quickly. But do you think this is a Trump era thing? Or is it something that was built gradually? I heard something that Joe Biden said the other day in an interview, and I support him. I'm not... You know, reading everything he says all the time, but he said something I, I totally agreed with, which is that hatred and prejudice and some of the worst aspects of who we are just need a little bit of light shined on them. And so I think that in some ways, Trump is just the light that was shined on something that was very much there already. Mm, yeah, just under the surface. Under the rock, you know, you kick the rock and the bugs, the insects run out from underneath it. But I do think that Trump has somehow managed to dismantle a lot of the safety measures and mechanisms that would protect us from an irresponsible politician. It's going to run deeper than just Trump. So what's going to happen? I mean, I'm just going to turn on YouTube and wait for some 
some new tent video <laughs> to make me excited and keep keep well, thinking if, about the who's gonna what, get elected that's my question oh, who's gonna win i think biden is definitely going to receive more votes and i think he is probably going to win but i think that you there do? are still i think that more people will cast their votes for biden than for trump but okay. i don't necessarily know that that means that biden will get to be president because trump is a very shady guy and he's going to do everything he can to discredit the election and even if he does lose and leave I think he could do a lot of damage by just calling into question, was it legal? Was it real? Was there interference? So in some ways, even if he loses, I think he could still do a lot of damage on his way out. Yeah. Or he could choose not to leave. I mean, the other thing is he could potentially choose to fight it and discredit the election and the electoral process. And I do think that there are more people in the country that want to get rid of Trump than to have him. Yeah. It's just so crazy. It's it's very very similar, but it, I just feel like in in the U.S. it hasn't been as gradual as it's been. I right. mean, Netanyahu is the prime minister; like he's been around for more than ten years. Yeah. So he had the time to do it gradually and without us noticing even though people were screaming the whole time you know he's dangerous yeah but you know you still have many people and not just from from his camp who still think that you know he's a he's an amazing politician i think yeah. the difference the big difference between trump and netanyahu and they can be compared um yes. in many ways but the difference is that benjamin netanyahu is an incredible politician and yeah. just an amazing person of speech. Right. He's a convincing speaker. He's oh, a- yeah. Very, very charismatic. But what a fucking asshole. Like, yeah. really. The stuff that he's caused in this place is just crime. I mean, I really mm-hmm. hope that he would be jailed very, very soon. I really hope. And I really hope, I, I hope for us that Trump doesn't win. I really hope because that would influence Israel. It's so interesting that you, you know, to have a relationship with another country like that, you know, in Israel that you have, you grow up with this relationship that like America is daddy. Yeah. Whatever happens to you guys politically influences what happens here. It's weird. I don't get why, what is... I mean, I get why we want to have that relationship, but why would you want to have that, you know, small country bugging you all the time? Like, you know, make America great. Why? Why? But I mean, I think it's because, number one, we needed a place in the middle, strategically for political reasons that we needed a place in the Middle East, you know, to park our airplanes and then also. (laughs) And test them on human beings. Do, you know, all the things. Test some weapons on people. America's relationship with Israel is complicated and I think there are obvious reasons why America wants to have that relationship with the, have a little sister in the Middle East but it, it it is complicated by all of these religious things and cultural things and it's like it's it's a mess. Yeah, it's like having a you know very wild and <laughs> unexpected um younger friend. Yeah who's, yeah. you know, someone to hang out with and they're always fun and it's never boring. But every now and then they're just doing something unex- unexpected. <laughs> that's you? Is that who you are to us or who I yes. we are to you? We are yeah, the, that's who the you are small, to us. Yeah, yeah. The funky friend. 
Hey, thank you for staying up late and doing this with uh, me. Sure. It's been such a pleasure. Congratulations on all of your new music. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, really. I hope that we stay in touch, and I hope if you come ever to New York again that I get yeah. to come and see You live in these. New York City? I live in Brooklyn. Oh, okay, cool. I'm not there now. I'm actually at my with my family in Wisconsin. I went home. Oh, I'm cool. in my... Yeah. I'm in so the, do you the, fly inside of... No, no. I drove, drove, drove 16 it. hours. Wow. Flights are not happening? I know some people who are flying, mm. and it's fine. I We were... My wife and daughter and I came here, and number one, it's nice to not know how long you're going to stay. We, we've been here for a month. Oh, wow. If you have a plane ticket, then you sort of have to know. Um, but the other thing is we're visiting my parents. They're older, and I just thought I didn't want to yeah, yeah. do anything. But I do know people who are flying, and apparently it's okay. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> do you put a mask on? Do you, are you masked in, in Israel ha- or not? You have to wear a mask. That is, um, yeah, it's good. Someone, someone's responsible here. And even on the street, you wear a mask on the street or only yeah, inside? Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to wear a mask. There's a fine, you go, like a You go on the street, seconds. you wear a mask. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's cool. Okay, Noga. Thank you so much. This has been so great. Be well. Okay, you too. Thank you so much. There she was, my friends. The captivating, the evocative, the chatty Noga Erez. Noga Errors, Noga, Errors, Noga, Errors. I knew I should have done birthright. I'll be back again before you know it with another deep dive. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. Shalom. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.